Hey, Forge family. Before we move on to episode number eight of the Joseph story, quickly recall that episode number seven covered seven plus years. Years of vast harvest, an immeasurable harvest, during which Joseph built the regional granaries to stage that harvest year upon year. And during those years, his wife gave birth to two sons, to whom Joseph gave Hebrew names, not Egyptian names, Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. We get to see Joseph's continued trust in Yahweh, the covenant God. By the naming of Manasseh, which means God has made me forget. And then Paren, all my trouble in my father's house. Close Paren. And the Hebrew name of Ephraim, God has made me be fruitful. Close per open Paren. In the land of my affliction, the land where I was a slave. Close Paren. And then the seven years of plenty ends. And the scorching east wind that comes up off the Arabian subcontinent, the Arabian Peninsula, it comes up and it begins to just crisp every green thing. Now, as it burns up the crops, obviously it's stressing the people and the livestock all over a vast region. And not just Egypt, but Canaan and a big portion of North Africa, the known world at the time, suffered greatly. See, this, this wind came up out of the empty quarter in Arabia. Daytime temperatures, 125 degrees plus, and it blew in from the east over and over and over again for seven years. So here it comes, and Pharaoh says, you go to, you go to Joseph, and he opens the granaries, and Joseph begins to sell grain to Egypt and to all who came from the known world who had cash in hand to buy. Forge family, you, you remember... Joseph was born of Rachel. He's, he's the 11th son, but firstborn to Rachel, the beloved wife of, of Jacob. And he would have been trained up at Jacob's side from being a small boy to being a young man in the skills of animal husbandry, breeding, and then training because he was being trained to become the steward of all of Jacob's flocks, herds, and finances, and as a shepherd over all 11 of Jacob's brothers, Joseph's brothers, the other, the other 11 sons of Jacob. So Joseph learned faithfulness in doing little things and graduated over the years to become steward over a nation. So last week, we finished the episode with our cry together for what Joseph had on his life. And that was that the Lord Yahweh was with him. All right, let's pray. Father God, like, like Joseph, we long for you to lead us down simple paths. As we learn to be faithful in little things, please, Lord, hold on to us as you've promised, and lead us into greater things. Life-changing things. Family and community changes. And ultimately, Lord, 
world-changing ways. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 to 7. Now, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, quote, I'm afraid that harm may befall him, unquote. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, Well, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. All right, let's, let's, let's back up a little bit here. We want to go back to the first lines of chapter 37, where it said, if you remember, this is the record that's following here for the next 13 chapters, 14 chapters, in Genesis. To Actually, it completes the book of Genesis. That is, they are the records of the generations of Jacob. See, we've been, we've been reading about Joseph. We've been studying his his adventure, if you will, and the stuff that's befallen him, but it really is still all about Jacob. Okay, so Jacob is back on the field, on the scene. He's he's old, he's an old man, but he's also very shrewd and very aware of what's going on. And he hears there's food in Egypt, there's grain in Egypt, and then he turns to his you know ten sons that are standing there, eleven sons, and he says, actually, it's it's. Uh, it's 10 because Benjamin is always held off to the side. And he says, why are you staring at each other? You're zoned out. You're just blank. And here I would, I would even submit a third option. Okay? I think those men still had a competitive stare-down contest. See, they're all half-brothers. You know, there are three other wives there. Not Rachel's gone. Okay? Rachel is gone, but there are three other living wives. And these brothers were competitive. And so they're staring at each other, saying, who's going to make the move? All right. So there's a second reference that follows here about grain. It, you know, this is a common theme all the way down here. Actually, through these first five verses, there's three times there's a reference about grain. Okay? And he sends his sons from Canaan to Egypt to buy. He says, let's you know, buy this stuff we want to live and not die. See, he, he's fully aware of the consequences of a vast famine. And he knows if we don't have grain, we can't live on the flocks and herds that we have. And the flocks and herds will die. So he sends off ten sons to Egypt. Now, now get this. We, we last left Jacob when he was burying his father. He had moved into the southern region. He was probably pasturing his flocks at that time at Beersheba, which had wells with water. Um, 
those wells full of water would have evaporated rapidly when there is daytime temperatures of 125 plus degrees. With this searing east wind and all the forage for flocks and herds, for sheep and goats and cattle, that turns into little crispy bits on, on stems and has no nutritional value whatsoever for those flocks. And I, I'm of the opinion that probably what Jacob did was quickly move his flocks and herds north because down the Rift Valley comes flowing the Jordan River. Okay, it runs out of the bottom of Mount Hermon on the slopes of southern Lebanon and, and way above the, the Sea of Galilee. And so he moves, I, I'm proposing that he move to try and stay ahead of this searing hot wind that produced famine. Because up on the slopes of Mount Hermon is elevation. And any mist, any moisture that comes in off the Mediterranean hits that elevation and things start to condense and they drip. And there would be some moisture to keep the land a little green for flocks and herds. But he gets there and there's nothing for the flocks and herds to eat. And so he turns to his sons and he says, get yourself to Egypt. But he withholds Benjamin. He doesn't send him because he's too precious. He would not want him taken away from him. <clears throat> so they arrive, and here's the vizier of the land, second only to Pharaoh. He's the one who's selling grain. Immediately, Joseph recognizes his ten oldest brothers. And he watches while his brothers bow their faces to the ground in front of him. If you recall, that was the first dream he had. You remember we were in the fields, my brothers. I had this dream and, and uh, we were putting our, the grain into sheaves and my sheaf rose up above all others and every other sheaf bowed down. Do you remember what the, his brother said to him? Do you really think we're going to bow down to you? And yet here they are, and they're doing that. And, and he recognizes them, but he disguises himself. See, he may have turned aside quickly and strapped on the ceremonial beard. Okay? We, we know that from archaeology, that, that queens and kings and rulers in Egypt were clean-shaven. That was a hygiene thing. That was a cultural value. But for coronations and for, for uh, interments to be buried, they would put on this fake beard. And here he is, ruler of the land, if you will. He may have disguised himself in that fashion. And he speaks harshly to them and he says, where have you come from? And their response is, we've come down from Canaan to buy food. All right, let's read verses 8 to 17. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had had about them, and he said to them, You are spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of this land. And then they said to him, No, no, my lord. But your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, No, your servants are twelve brothers in all. 
the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your word may be tested whether it's true, whether there's truth in you. But if not, by the Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So we put them all together in prison for three days. Four times, Joseph charges his brothers with being spies of the land. And that they had come to seek out and look at literally the nakedness of the land, the undefended parts of the land. <clears throat> now, the ten brothers deny the charge. They keep saying, we're honest men. Now, now, now note, okay, dating the presence of Joseph in Egypt is very confusing. There's no record yet found of a Zaphonath Paneah. And there are, but there are records of multiple awful famines. And, and modern scholars who have set out to try and, and dismiss this record of Joseph from the scriptures, they want to dismantle the biblical account of it. Okay, And so they say, no, no, he, he's this person. He's uh, uh, Imhotep. He is this person, and he fits in this dynasty, and he was over here. And, but the truth is, we don't yet know. They keep digging, they keep discovering. Archaeology continues to prove what the scripture proclaims. Now, you have to understand, too, Egypt was conquered by a nation that for hundreds of years prior were trading partners of Egypt. They were the Hiskos people, and they were... They were a Semitic people, either Amorite or Hittite or both. Okay, they were Canaanite peoples. And they, when they came to Egypt, they found a soft, uh, a soft border. They, saw, they found little defense work on the border. And they swept into Egypt and they took over the government. And with them they brought certain military technology. They had developed a compound bow. This is not the straight bow. This is not the recurve bow. This is a compound bow. Okay, And that bow had the capacity, when fully drawn, fully loaded, to throw an arrow hundreds of yards farther than the other two bows. That gave those Hiskos forces standoff capability. It would be equivalent of tactical nuclear weapons in a, in a battle theater of today. You can stand off and strike your enemy at a distance. They also brought chariots. Now, when we see movies of the Ten Commandments or, or the life of Moses, you know, that, that honestly is staged 400, 420, 450 years later than this, these dates right here. Okay? You see chariots in those movies, but those are not Egyptian inventions. Egypt did not hold the patent on chariots, those were Hiskos inventions. And they came south with these invaders. 
Now, at the time of Joseph, the eastern borders and the northern borders to Egypt along, you know, along the Levant, they would have been garrisoned. There would have been troops in place to carefully shake down and check the travelers who were coming, claiming that they were coming to buy grain because, obviously, spies would have mixed in with that crowd. Same situation coming out of the, out of the Middle East today. You know, there's hundreds and thousands who are fleeing Syria, who are fleeing ISIS. The question is, who in their midst are spies? Who in their midst are agents who have been placed in the refugees? Okay, same situation with Joseph. Okay, so the troops would have been checking on the border. Okay, <clears throat> Egypt had food. Those warring nations did not have food. All the raiders, you know, the Amalekites, the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, those who were desert raiders, the camel, the camel raiders, you know, the warring bands, they didn't have food. And so Joseph had placed those soldiers there to make sure that Egypt was secure. He wasn't going to have the nation fall to a flash raid of people who are desperately hungry. Now, Joseph's charges against his brothers are not true. Okay? They aren't spies. But it was necessary in his mind to break down and to unnerve the ten brothers who had sold him into slavery. And he gets them to tell the family history. Well, we're, we're twelve sons of one man and there's one brother still at home and one who is no more. See, the, then out of him comes the first threat where he says, all of you are going to be imprisoned. All of you are guilty until you prove your innocence. Okay? And he gives them a taste of the fate they dished out on him. And for three days, they're in an Egyptian jail. Perhaps the very jail that Joseph spent years in. Three days versus 13 years as a slave and certainly years as a jail, being jailed in that facility. All right, let's read verses 18 to 24. It says, Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison, the one that you're in now. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine to your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then, he said, then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother. That's Joseph. They're talking about him. Okay. Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we did not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered and said, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy. And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away. Joseph turned away and wept. 
But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Three days. Three days to experience what it's like. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the fear of an Egyptian prison. Then Joseph comes back and says, do this and live for I fear Elohim. Okay? One will remain a prisoner while you go get the younger brother. And I'm going to test you. And you're going to prove your innocence as honest men when you come back with that younger brother. So ten of them are swamped with guilt. Just you know, crushed. The tsunami of guilt has landed on their lap. And they perceive that this penalty that's come upon them is directly related to their treatment of their brother Joseph. Okay, when, when Joseph hears this, he turns aside and weeps. See, none of this is getting pat by him. He's totally fluent in Hebrew, but he's not dealing with them in Hebrew. He's speaking Egyptian through an interpreter to them who understand Hebrew. And they turn loose on themselves and they go, Oh, we're in a terrible place. Joseph knew exactly the place they were in because he understood. And then he comes back, washes his face, comes back, and he takes Simeon in front of them and binds them in front of them all and says, this one stays. Now, why would he pick Simeon? Because Simeon was the oldest brother in the batch who would have then been responsible for the sale of Joseph to the Midianites. Where was Reuben, the oldest? Remember, Reuben was dancing around in the background. He went behind the hedge, behind the hill, through the forest. He was going to come around the back way and lift Joseph out of that dry cistern, out of the pit, and take him away secretly and deliver him into the hands of Jacob so that he could say to Jacob, you know, your other sons were going to do a bad thing to your son Joseph, and I rescued him, thinking that this was a manipulation that would restore him to be the firstborn, to have the rights and privileges of the firstborn. It was a political move that failed. Remember, he arrived at the side of the pit, looked down, and it was empty. Joseph has gone, was gone. He'd been sold. And he went, what do I do now? But who was in charge? The second eldest, meaning Simeon. Joseph remembered that. And Joseph knew about his cruelty. He was part of the band that killed every man in the city of Shechem. And so he singles out Simeon and ties him up and says, back to jail with you. And he turns the others toward home. Now let's read verses 25 to 28. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their sacks with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he found his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? See, Joseph orders the sale, if you will, of the grain. And he fills two sacks each 
One is a big sack that's going to get loaded on the donkeys, and one is a small sack. The small sack was provisions for the journey. For the men, they could take that grain and they could parch it. They could roast it on a hot stone and they could eat it, and it would nourish them for the journey. But apparently, one of the brothers had fed his donkey all of his provisions and eaten all the rest, and he needed some grain out of his big sack, and he opened it, and there, in the neck of that sack, was his original payment for the grain in the sack that he had carried down from Canaan. And he points it out to his brothers, and they all trembled. And they said, what is God doing to us? I mean, that, you know, they're, they're saying there's been a huge mistake here, and, and either it's great luck and great favor, or we're dead men. We're going to be charged with theft. Let's read verses 29 to 38. When they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, he told, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly to us and took us as spies of the country. But we said to him, We're honest men. We're not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with his father today in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine for your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now, it came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben said to his father, saying, You may take my two sons and put them to death if I do not bring him, meaning Benjamin, back to you and put him in my, put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. <clears throat> if harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So the ten, excuse me, the nine brothers, excuse me, remember, Simeon's still in jail. The nine brothers arrive home and they soften the report to Jacob. Oh yeah, they, he, we were charged with spying, but, you know, uh, we, and, and we had to leave Simeon behind as kind of a hostage. He's in jail until we bring Benjamin back uh, and, and that will accomplish the release of Simeon. We're going to get him back alive. And, and then we can trade in the land. We're, we can get all the grain we need. See, then every sack that was unloaded was discovered to have the original payment in the neck of the sack. And they were all shocked. They're all dismayed. They're rocked to their sandals. Jacob, okay, now he says, two of my sons are gone. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin? Uh-uh, no way. Reuben steps up and he says, I'm going to offer you my two sons. You could kill them. 
You could kill my two sons, your two grandsons, if I cannot retrieve Benjamin for you, if I can't relieve, get Benjamin and Simeon back. And Jacob still says, not a chance. He's all I have left from Rachel. Now, the from Rachel part was probably in parenthesis because he's not counting the other ten sons. And if Benjamin were to die down on that journey on the way back to Egypt, Jacob just flat says, Benjamin dies, I die. All right, Forge family. We have the storyline. Let's, let's just step back. Let's, let's step back from this. And a little summary, and then we'll zoom out, okay? Here we all see Jacob still clinging to Rachel's children and valuing him more than all the sons from his other three wives. It's the same old, same old stuff. Okay? Now, his response to Reuben, okay, and the other eight is, you know, you can offer me grandchildren to kill? No. No way. I would rather starve than release Benjamin to you. And the bottom line is, all these events are all about Jacob. So, Forge family, let's step back. Let's zoom out, okay? Let me ask you some questions. Some of these may be familiar, but they really need to get asked again because they flow out of the text. So, first, did you grow up in a family where a, a sibling, brother, sister, or, or a near cousin was more highly regarded than you or than anyone else in the family? Did you sit on the sideline while, while other siblings got what you longed for and you never received? Now, might God's hand have been in that mess, that longing? You see, he alone can fill you up. He alone can erase that sadness, just like Manasseh. Okay? He alone can give you back the years that the locust has eaten. Remember the, the reference out of the book of Joel? Okay? The plague that comes in, it eats up everything, year after year after year. And here, you know, you may have experienced things, experienced something left. You know, the only thing that's left from those years is just little locust pellets. <laughs> okay? My life has been eaten up. So here, Farad Forge family, we have watched Joseph turn aside to weep. And we watched him turn aside to cover his emotion as he tests the character of those that did him evil. See, he's still not ready to tell them who he is and what God has been doing in his life. Joseph is careful, he's crafty, but he walks this line of fearing God more than his brothers. So, when you have been hurt, is it easy for you to forgive? And if the magnitude of the hurt is huge, do you rush to forgive and trust the one who hurt you? Well, no, not really, not usually, maybe not ever. See, you, like Joseph, 
are careful. You do the due diligence to determine if the one who hurt you has really repented. And if you find yourselves now grieving over past stuff, if you find yourself unable now to forgive, right now you got something that just is stuck. There isn't any way to forgive that. And if you need someone alongside of you to walk that path to reconciliation, stop. Stop that walk. God is all over your hurt. Just like Joseph. Let God into those deep places. The unspoken places. Maybe the unspeakable places. And ask for partnership with your brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with you toward healing and forgiveness. Finally, some of you may have indeed been lifted out of jail, out of addictions, out of seeming failure to stand before God, to become his servant, his son, his daughter. So, so tell us about that journey. We want to rejoice with you. We want to be your rear guard. No more slips. No more slides backward. Okay? If you're going to fail, you're going to fail forward. And we're with you. See, we want to praise God for what he's doing inside of you. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for exposing this dysfunctional family again. Exposing the fact that you are working in them to make a name for yourself in their midst. You're making a people who will name your name and say, we are the people of God. And they'll bow the knee and they'll bow the heart to you. And we want to be with them. And some of us have those kinds of wounds and those kinds of hard things. Come, Lord, be part of the healing. Come, Lord, be part of the restoration. Come, Lord, Please restore our families. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, Forge family. I love you. See you soon.